0: Think about the story in the book of John, when a man is literally blind, Jesus heals him and he's being questioned by the religious leaders of the day and they're asking him, what, what about this guy? What do, you, what do you think about this guy? Is this guy who he says he is? Is this guy the Messiah? And he says, I, I don't know all of that. That's that's for you all to decide. He says, well, the one thing I know is that I was blind and now I see. When we think about the fact that Jesus Christ has saved us, the world may come at us with all kinds of objections and questions and we may not have every answer that they have a question for. But I know that I was blind and now I see. I was dead and now I'm alive and because of that I know Jesus is the Savior. Take your Bibles, turn with me to the book of Daniel. We're going back to the Old Testament. We've been in the New Testament book of Philippians for the last nine weeks. We're going to jump back into the Old Testament for a couple of weeks as we prepare our hearts for Easter, as we walk through this here and now together. But we're going to Daniel chapter 9. Daniel chapter 9. Now, um, one year ago this week um, was a Sunday unlike anything we had ever had before. One year ago this week was the Sunday, the first time that we as a church went online on Facebook so that our services were broadcast outside of this place. Now, we didn't do that because of months of research and years of work to get there, right? We did that because we found out on Wednesday of the previous week that the world was shutting down. And we had to figure out what was going on. I consulted with doctors, I consulted with officials, I consulted with government, I consulted with people within the church to figure out what to do on that Sunday. And this Sunday, last year, was the last time we would meet in person until June. The world changed. And a year later, we have some answers to some questions that were being asked this time last year. Well, we don't have all the answers to all the questions, and there are lots of new questions that seem to pop up all the time. And we are moving towards what we hope is a light at the end of the tunnel of this particular virus. But the truth is, our future is uncertain. I saw someone earlier this week was writing about thinking about doing church and thinking about their life, and they said, I can tell you that the future for me is clearly fuzzy. It's unknown. We don't really know what's out there. Part of that's what's prompted us during these 40 days leading up to Easter to pray. Hey, God, what is it that you want us to do as your church? God, what is it that you desire for us to do to move forward into the community, into the area in which you've called us to be a church? How can we reach them? How can we follow your direction to go into the world? What does it look like to be a church in Goodlettsville, Tennessee, post-pandemic? We have to realize that the world is changing, was changing before the pandemic ever arrived. There's one church commentator that says that we have to come to grips with the fact that because of the invention of the Internet and how quickly it goes now and how much access there is out there, that we are seeing the greatest shift in how people receive information that has happened in 500 years. I started ministry not that long ago, I feel like. I'm getting older, I don't know if y'all know that or not, but it's happening every day. And if you would have explained to me the technology that goes into what we do on a regular basis and where we are going in the future as a society, it would have blown my mind at that time. We're praying, God, this significant change that was already happening, that many people have said has been accelerated exponentially by the last year, What does that mean for us? What does that look like for us? How do we operate as a church? How should we operate in the midst of that? And just to be honest with you, at times I have sat in the midst of this and just said, Lord, I don't even know how to pray at times in the midst of this. I mean, obviously I know to pray that I want this disease to be done and I want people healed from it and I want it to be wiped out from the earth. But I'm talking about I'm not sure how to pray about what's next because I'm having a hard time visualizing what's next. And as I was walking through that, processing through that, I was drawn to Daniel chapter 9. Daniel is a book written five to 600 years before Jesus was born. Somewhere around 2,500 years ago in a part of the world that's unfamiliar to most of us. It's a book that's pretty well known, right? If I were to ask you, when you think of the book of Daniel, you tell me. This isn't a rhetorical question. You tell me. What are some things you think of when you hear the book Daniel or you hear the name Daniel from the Bible? The lion's den, right? He gets thrown in the lion's den, hungry lions there, and God shuts their mouths and he comes out the next day. What else is in Daniel that you know? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, right? Excited about... Fiery furnace, you know, one of my favorite verses in all of scripture that we serve a God who will deliver us from the fire. But even if he doesn't, we will not bow our knee. Right. Daniel's become popular lately for the Daniel diet, intermittent fasting or fasting from food that are there. And you think about all the things that have come. I don't I don't think that's what the purpose of writing Daniel was. But Daniel and his friends decided to only eat foods that would um, not eat the king's food and that they would live that diet out. And God blessed them in the midst of that. Some people, when they think of Daniel, think of prophecy. They think of Daniel giving all kinds of prophetic sayings. And there is prophecy throughout the book of Daniel. And today I want to talk about a part of Daniel that we don't talk a whole lot about. And it is Daniel chapter 9. And it's a chapter almost primarily full of prayer. Because here's their situation. Daniel is a part of the Israelites that are in captivity having been taken from their homeland 70 years around earlier and taken to this new land. He was part of the young crew of leaders that they took over there when he was a teenager, which means if he was, say, 16, let's just do quick math. I know this is church. You don't like to do math. If he was 16 years old and we're almost 70 years later, how old is he now? 86. He's in his 80s. So Daniel chapter 9, he's an older man looking back on his life, and while he's doing Bible study, we'll just talk about that in a moment, he discovers something that makes him go, oh, we're not ready for that. And he realizes that the nation of Israel, God's people, are in transition and the future is muddy. Now, what God has said he will do is not. What God sees of the future is not muddy. But for him in that moment, it was a moment of what exactly is coming. And he spends a great deal of this chapter praying. In a few moments, we're going to read the entire prayer. And it's a lengthy prayer. It's one of the longest sections of scripture I would have read in a long time. But I want you to get a feel for what is happening in his heart and his mind. Today, I want to talk about specifically how do we pray We're in this time of praying daily about what God has for us as a church. We're in this time of praying about what the future holds for our church. We're in a time of fasting on Tuesdays, asking the Lord to bless that as we look to what God is calling us to do. So I want to talk a little bit about how do we pray in the midst of a clearly unclear future? The first thing that we see in this passage that we must understand is that our prayers must be informed by God's word. I think this is interesting because most of the time when we do prayer in the Bible, we don't really have any kind of description of what led to the prayer. But in Daniel chapter 9, we have a very specific description of what led to his prayer. Look what it says in chapter 9, verse 1. In the first year of Darius, the son of uh, somebody's name that starts with an A, Uh, I think that's Ahasuerus, but I'm not real sure about that. A Mede by birth, who was made king over the Chaldean kingdom. So this is in the first year of Darius. It's the first year of a new king. And he says, in the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, understood from the books according to the word of the Lord to the prophet Jeremiah that the number of years for the desolation of Jerusalem would be 70. So here's what's happening. He is searching the scripture, studying the scripture. You've got a man in his late 80s studying the scripture, trying to figure out what is going on. It's the first year of a new king. There are changes all around. Things are happening that weren't happening before. And he's wondering what's going on. He searches the prophecies of Jeremiah. And he realizes, uh uh-oh, it's been almost 70 years since we were taken into captivity. Jeremiah said that it would take 70 years. And so he begins to think, How do we handle what is about to come? One of the things that we must realize as we pray for the things of the Lord, as we pray for the things of this church, as we pray in our own life is we must pray in accordance to what God has already declared to be true in his word. You cannot pray something in competition with the Lord's will and expect it to be answered. In the New Testament, Jesus would say that whatever you ask in my name, it'll be given unto you. And when most sometimes we think that that means if we put the tagline on the end of our prayer, in Jesus name, we pray, amen, that it's like a stamp of approval that we're putting on the prayer. But that's not what that verse means. Not that you should stop praying in the name of Jesus because it's his character, his his competency that allows us to pray. But what it means is that if it is in line with the character of God and the dictates of God and the proclamations of God and the purposes of God, if we are praying in alignment with what the word has already revealed about who God is and what he's doing in our midst, that is the prayer that gets answered. And to know who God is and what he's doing and what his plans are to know that the only real resource we have that will never lie to us about that is the word of God. If you want a word from God, you have to get a word into the word of God. We have people that sometimes act like, well, I'm good at one or the other, but I'm really into Bible study, but my prayer life isn't that great. Or I'm really a prayer warrior. I'm just not it's it's hard for me to get into the word all the time. The reality is one must inform the other. We must be people of the word to become people of pointed prayer that know what to pray. And we must be people of prayer to understand what God is doing in his word. And so he, this first year, he's seeking out. It's a clearly uncertain future. He's not sure what's coming ahead. And so the first year of this King Darius, he comes and says, I want to study Jeremiah. I want to figure out what's going. And he starts to look into it. And he sees verses. And I think there are a couple of places that he sees this from. First of all, Jeremiah 25, verses 8 through 12. And it's up on the screen. You can turn there if you want to, but I'll read it from here. It says, therefore, this is what the Lord of armies says. Because you have not obeyed my words, I'm going to sin for all the families of the north, this is the Lord's declaration, and sin for my servant, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon. We'll talk about that in a minute, how amazing that statement is. And I will bring them against this land, against its residents, and against all these surrounding nations, and I will completely destroy them and make them an example of horror and scorn and ruins forever. I will eliminate the sound of joy and gladness from them, the voice of the groom and the bride, the sound of millstones and the light of the lamp. This whole land will become a desolate ruin, and these nations will serve the king of Babylon for 70 years. And when the 70 years are completed, that's key, I will punish the king of Babylon and that nation, this is the Lord's declaration, That land of the Chaldeans for their iniquity, and I will make it a ruin forever. So this is what he says. I know that's a lot of biblical history kind of wrapped up in one there. What he says is, listen, my people have disobeyed me, and they have disobeyed me to the point, this is the southern kingdom, that it is time for them to be destroyed. So I'm going to send somebody to destroy them. Now here's what's crazy. He gives the name and the nation of who's going to do it and how long they'll be down. This isn't some kind of horoscope prediction that says the days ahead have trouble awaiting. This is Nebuchadnezzar from Babylon is going to destroy you and then you're coming back 70 years later. And he says that there will be no joy in Jerusalem. There will be no life like we know it. There will be no threshing and sounding of all of the harvesting that is happening. There won't be weddings like we've known it. It will be a period of desolation and it will last for 70 years. He says it again in Jeremiah chapter 29 verse 10. Now, most of you, when I say Jeremiah 29, you know only one verse in Jeremiah 29 and that's Jeremiah 29 11. It's a great verse, but the verse right before it is important to that verse. Says so this is what the Lord says, when 70 years for Babylon are complete, I will attend to you and confirm my promise concerning you to restore you to this place. Verse 11, for I know the plans that I have for you, plans to prosper you and not to harm you, plans to give you a hope and a future. So this is what I think. Now, I don't know this for sure. This is a little bit of biblical speculation, but he's searching Jeremiah and he sees this calling about 70 years and he is like, it's almost there. It's almost time. Something is coming. I'm not real sure what it is, but God says He's going to restore us. We can talk for just a moment about the fact that it is absolutely amazing the prediction of what God does and what we know from history to be true. The Babylonians were thought to be an unconquerable people until they were conquered at exactly the time God said they would be conquered. Written... Hundred years before they were conquered. And while we may not know. The future ourselves. Our key is to know the one that does. And rules and reveals through scripture what is to come. We don't need to know everything about the future that is there. Listen, as your pastor for our church. As we have these times when we're thinking about what could be or what could happen or where we are, filling positions, thinking about the future, thinking about our mission and our goals, I would love it if God would send down from on high a checklist of things to do in a date beside it. And I'm not, he may. Praise be to God if he decides to work in that way. I just know through the history of the world that is not how he works. He calls us to trust him first and foremost. And he reveals the portion of what we need to know, when we need to know it, at that exact time. Never early, never late, right on time. And as Daniel is studying these scriptures from Jeremiah, he realizes something vital. They're not ready. One of the things I find interesting about this passage of scripture too is that this is Daniel, right? Like, when you hear Daniel, you think of him as a pretty strong follower of God, right? Right, you still with me? I mean, Daniel's a strong, I mean, the Daniel and the lions, then we tell because he's a strong follower. The, 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 the not eating what the king dictated was because he was a strong follower. If you look through the rest of the book, in fact, I think it's safe to say he was probably the one seeking to follow the Lord most strongly of this group of people in Babylon at that time, at least that we can have any knowledge of. And yet he is still being revealed things to him, studying the same scriptures that he has been studying for 60 and 70 years. Which is why it's so important to us to continue to mine the depths of God's word. Hebrews 4.12 tells us that the word of God is living and effective and sharper than any double-edged sword, penetrating as far as the separation of soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It is able to judge the thoughts and the intentions of the heart. The point there is it is living and active. It is constantly showing us things that has been there all along. The Word of God is what the Word of God was, but it reveals to us new things as we study it and as we ask the Spirit to show us. And so when we pray... We pray informed by what God's Word tells us about who He is and what He's doing. Over the last few weeks, I mentioned this a couple of weeks ago, the, the lessons of experiencing God by Henry Blackaby have come back to me again and again and again. That we are to find out where God is working and join him there. I had a meeting this week in my office about something that's really exciting for me. And I don't think it's coincidence that it came during this time. We're seeking the Lord's guidance and direction. It was a guy that has come that has a work here in Goodlettsville that have missionaries already involved that have plans already there. And he's asking us to partner with us. And it's literally at a place that is across the parking lot from our church. And all of these plans are coming together. There are connections to him and our church from different places, from people that are part of our church and children and missionaries. And it's just, you see the Lord in the midst of that and you say, Lord, how can I jump in on that? And our prayer lives informed by scripture do the same. Second thing we see from Daniel's life in this is that effective prayer is a part of a consistent life. This is verse 3. It says, so I turned my attention to the Lord God to seek him by prayer and petitions with fasting and sackcloth and ashes. Now, this is not the only time that we've seen Daniel do this. He prayed about whether or not to eat the food of the king. He prayed when it came before he was thrown into the lion's den. The reason he was thrown in the lion's den is because he wouldn't stop praying. His life was consistently living in the direction of following the Lord. We know from scripture, not just this one, but others, that he was diligently seeking God's word. He was diligently reading and studying God's word. We know that he had a group of faithful friends. Now, we don't have mention of his faithful friends anymore in this part of the, of the Bible. And part of that may be because they have gone on to be with the Lord, that they are no longer there with him. But we know from the early, the Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego guys, that they were faithful friends, that he surrounded himself with friends. I don't know whether you know this or not, but a lot of your destiny is determined by the people with whom you keep company. So why it's so important as parents when we think about the people that our kids are friends with that we think about when they move to a new setting or a new school or a new stage of life, whether it be from from middle school to high school, or from high school to college, or from college to work life, or moving even as adults, moving from one place to another. The people that we surround ourselves with determine a lot of how we end up acting. One of the things that I am grateful for with my parents, with my dad and mom, we were raised in Dyersburg, small town. Uh, my dad was a baseball coach. That's how he served the community and helped the community. He was uh, the manager of a... a what we call kitty league baseball back then, Dixie youth. Goodwill used to be big Dixie youth town, right? Big baseball town. And my dad was the coach. And I still remember one day I was talking to him. This is when I was like 20 or 21 years old. And I said, dad, I look back on that team and I'm so thankful that so many of my best friends were on that team with me. For instance, when I got married, we had nine attendants each at our wedding. We had a big wedding. Six of those attendants were from Dyersburg. All six of them played on my kitty league baseball team with me. And I remember talking to dad about that, and dad says, they weren't your friends before that team. And he said, your mom and I specifically talked about people we wanted to draft because we thought they would be good influences and friends for you for life. I said, I don't like being manipulated like that. Don't ever do that to me (laughs) again. Right. Luckily, I was beyond that point when I'd been upset about that, right? But it's true. And he had surrounded himself with people that encouraged him in his faith. He mentions fasting in here, a consistent life of fasting. He did that again and again and again. For many of you, you've been joining us on Tuesdays. Hopefully, most of you are joining us on Tuesdays and fasting. It's not just to do something. It is to put ourselves in a position of being humbled and listening to the Lord. And then he spent a life of prayer. Listen, prayer is for us. God doesn't need our prayer to be informed about what's happening in the world. He already knows. He doesn't need to be informed about what ought to happen in the world. He knows. God allows us to pray so that we can be in fellowship with him that can be out loud, that can be silently, it can be in public or private, it can be scheduled or spontaneous. It can be in a posture of prayer on your knees, prostrate on the floor, looking up to heaven. A lot of Hebrew prayer was people looking up to the sky with their hands raised, praying. It can be any of those things. God looks not at the outward appearance of man, but what's happening in the heart. And then Daniel, I'm going to read this and just talk very briefly about the parts, because it's pretty normal parts of what we talk about prayer but I want you to see it played out in Daniel. Then, once you come to the place that it's informed by Scripture and that it's a part of a pattern of your life that includes other things, then there is a pattern to prayer. There's a way that we do it. Look at verse 4. It says this. And we're going to read all the way to verse 19. I prayed to the Lord my God and confessed, Lord, the great and all-inspiring God who keeps His gracious covenant with those who love Him and keep His commands, We have sinned. We have done wrong. We have acted wickedly. We have rebelled and we have turned away from your commands and ordinances. We have not listened to your servants, the prophets who spoke in your name to your our kings and leaders and ancestors and all the people of the land. Lord, righteousness belongs to you. But this day, public shame belongs to us. The men of Judah, the residents of Jerusalem and all Israel, those who are near and those who are far and all countries where you have banished them because of the disloyalty they have shown toward you. Lord, public shame belongs to us, our kings, our leaders and our ancestors, because we have sinned against you. Compassion and forgiveness belong to the Lord, our God, though we have rebelled against him and have not obeyed the Lord, our God, by following his instructions that he set before us through his servants, the prophets. All of Israel has broken your law and turned away, refusing to obey you. The promised curse written in the law of Moses, the servant of God, has been poured out on us because we have sinned against him. He has carried out his words that he spoke against us and against our rulers by bringing on us a disaster that is so great that nothing like what has been done to Jerusalem has ever been done under all of heaven. Just as it is written in the law of Moses, all this disaster has come on us, yet we have not sought the favor of the Lord our God by turning from our iniquities and paying attention to your truth. So the Lord kept the disaster in mind and brought it on us for the Lord, our God, is righteous and all he has done. We have not obeyed him now, Lord, our God, who brought your people out of the land of Egypt with a strong hand and made your name renowned as it is to this day. We have sinned. We have acted wickedly. Lord, in keeping with all of your righteous acts, may your anger and wrath turn away from the city Jerusalem, your holy mountain, for because of our sins and the iniquities of our ancestors, Jerusalem and your people have become an object of ridicule to all those around us. Therefore, our God, hear the prayer and the petitions of your servant. Make your face shine on the desolate sanctuary for the Lord's sake. Listen closely, my God, in here. Open your eyes and see our desolations in the city that bears your name. For we are not presenting our petitions before you based on our righteous acts, but based on your abundant compassion. Lord, hear. Lord, forgive. Lord, listen and act. My God, For your own sake, do not delay because your city and your people bear your name. There's a pattern to prayers that are effective. And the first thing is we must acknowledge the greatness of our God. He does this at the very beginning. He says, the great and awe-inspiring God who keeps His gracious covenant with those who love Him and keep His commands. And then throughout the prayer, over and over again, He'll say, it's not because of you that we're in this situation. It's because of us. You had no choice, God. You had to because of your righteousness, because of your love, because of your mercy, Lord. We're asking you. You are a great God who is all-powerful. You control the earth. You are sovereign over all. You had no choice, God, because of our sin, because of our disobedience, because of our rebellion, Lord. You did what was right and punishing us and removing Jerusalem. That is what exactly a righteous, holy God should do. And you are mighty to do whatever you please. We acknowledge the absolute greatness of our God. If you start any prayer without at first acknowledging the God to whom you were speaking, then you have treaded into a place That is holy and we are unprepared for. We go back to it again and again here. Isaiah chapter 6. God used it as part of my calling. When he walks in there and suddenly he sees the majesty of God. And he is awestruck and wants to get out. When the disciples see Jesus in any portion of the fullness of who he is. They fall on their face and says we are not worthy to be here. And so the first step in any prayer is we admit and talk about, acknowledge the greatness of God. The second thing is we acknowledge who we are. The author here, Daniel, piles upon itself word after word after word that describes sin. He talks about missing the mark, and these are the uh, literal translations. Doing the opposite of what you call it. Being evil, being rebellious, being off your path, being treacherous. He's saying that our sin is multifaceted. It's not just one sin. It is a lifestyle of sin. He even says, and we haven't even come back to you. It's almost like Daniel sees like, uh-oh, we're close to this. Nobody's been praying for God to do what he said he would do. We're close to the 70 years, and nobody's been coming to the Lord and saying, now is the time, Lord. Now is the time. Let's do it. Let's go. We haven't even be prepared because we haven't been doing what you called us to do or seeking your word or praying like you've called us to pray and I do find it interesting that he doesn't say these people aren't doing what you've called us to do these people aren't doing what you've told them is right these people are sinful he says we and in our prayer life we must come before the Lord understanding that without Christ we have no standing before him Most of us like to look around at the sins of others in order to feel better about ourselves instead of looking up to the Holy God and realizing this is who we are. We are sinful people that miss the mark, do the opposite of what God says. We have evil in our hearts. We are rebellious people off the path that he's called us to, treacherous in our ways. There's usually a spectrum for the way that people and churches and societies handle it. First of all, they deny that it's really that big of a deal. It's not that, that huge of a deal. Or they try to hide. That was Adam and Eve. They try to hide themselves from God. They excuse what they did. Well, that's, that was just a one time or I was really tired that day. Or I didn't really fully understand what was going on. Or we blame someone else. We blame someone in our family. We blame somebody in society. We blame the system. We blame uh, the devil. We blame whatever it is for our own personal sin. Then we begin to try to normalize what sin is and says. This is just who it is. This is who I am. This is what I've always been. And then we celebrate it. Doesn't that sound like our society in some ways denies the sin that's there, hides it, excuses it, blames other people, normalizes sin as something that's common, and then celebrates the sin for all to see. The only way to appropriately handle the sin in our lives is to do what Daniel does here. And it says that even in verse four, as he starts the prayer, I prayed to the Lord and confessed confession means to agree with the Lord upon your sin. We acknowledge the greatness of God, we acknowledge who we are, and then we acknowledge the grace of God. Tim Keller often says the good news of the gospel is that you are worse than you ever imagined and God is greater than we ever thought. He is more gracious than we can believe. He talks throughout here about the compassion and forgiveness. He uses language of covenantal love, loving kindness and mercy and loyal love. And he says, Lord, we don't deserve it. In fact, a couple of times when it looks like he's about to ask God for forgiveness, a couple of times when he's about to ask God to restore the nation, a couple of times he's about to say, can you bring us back to Jerusalem? He stops mid-sentence and says, it's not because of us. We have sinned. We are acting wickedly. It's because of you and your name and your glory and your greatness and your grace. It kind of just catches you off guard like in verse 15. Lord, the one that brought your people out of the land of Egypt with a strong hand and made a name renowned as it is today. You get the feeling that the next verse is do it again now, Lord, right here, right now. Do what you did with the people back in Egypt. But he doesn't. He stops and says, we've sinned, Lord. We've acted wickedly. So I'm not saying this on anything based on us. I'm talking about the glory and the graciousness of who you are. Listen, as we are asking the Lord in these days to move here and now, it is not because we think we've done anything to deserve God moving here and now. It is because we want the glory of the name of Jesus Christ. And God the Father and God the Spirit to be lifted high in our area, and for people to see the saving grace of God put into their lives, and for the kingdom of God to be expanded in this place. It has nothing to do with our worthiness to be a part of that. God, move here and now. And it's almost like we need to. And that Habakkuk three two, and they don't in Habakkuk. So I'm not adding to the scripture, but when he says, "Lord, we have seen what you have done in past. We have heard of your great works." Lord, we're sinners. We don't deserve it. But Lord, move here and now. And it's because of this covenantal love where God says that He loves us in the midst of our sin. In Jesus' storybook Bible we used to read to our kids calls it the never stopping, never giving up, unbreaking, always and forever love of God. And once you establish The greatness of God, who we are in our sinfulness, the grace of God that forgives that for those of us that have accepted Jesus Christ as our Savior. Once you've got that, then you say, God, for the sake of your name and the spread of your kingdom, move. Daniel 9 ends his prayer by saying, God, restore Jerusalem because it bears your name. Restore your people because we bear your name not for us, not for our comfort not for anything but we want your name to be made great and we want your kingdom expanded we're praying for God to move here and now but we do that acknowledging it's not because of our goodness or anything other than the grace of God to spread his kingdom in fact you may be here today and you're I've never accepted Jesus Christ as your savior and you are living in that guilt and shame and hiding and denying your own sin. But the Lord is willing and able and ready to save you today. It's similar to the prayer here. You just admit to God that you are a sinner who cannot on your own save yourself and trust in Jesus Christ who died on the cross for our sin and rose again from the grave to prove that he had power over death. He will save you if you just ask him to save you. For those of us here that are already saved, already have been rescued from our sin, As we look at the future, as you look at your family's future, as you look at the future of your career, as you look at the future of your impact, are you praying in a manner like Daniel in the midst of an unknown future, God, you're awesome, you're glorious, I'm not... And here are some areas of my life that I need to confess before you now and ask for your forgiveness. And I'm in a hard time seeing the forgiveness in my life, but Lord, I know you promise it. And I'm asking you to move, not for my name's sake, not for who I am, but for who you are and what you're calling us to do. And as a church, as we're praying for God to move here and now, we're praying for him to bring glory to his name and for him to spread his kingdom. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we pray that in this moment that You'll just give us wisdom. I pray that for people that are listening to my voice right now, that You'll give them an understanding of what it is they need to do to respond to Your Word, to this worship today, and to what You've called us to do. Although we pray that we will be Unlike the people described in Daniel, Lord, that we will be obedient to what you call us to do today in this place. Trusting in your grace to help us in those areas where we fall. I pray if there is one here today that's never accepted you as their Savior, Lord, that they would, first of all, understand that's something they need to do that they've never done. Or that you would make them uncomfortable in this place because of the importance of what needs to happen. Lord, I pray that you would give them the courage to surrender their lives, to admit to you their need for a Savior, and trust in you for that salvation. I pray for us as a church, Lord, that you'll just give us direction as we move into an uncertain future. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.